Let's do this. The Cup of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staple of the Edmonton Journal. And I'm here today with Bruce. Hey, David. Not literally. I guess literally I look down at it, not figuratively. Because you're like... My computer's lower than the my camera, so it always looks like I'm looking down at you. <laughs> I don't know why I just said. <laughs> How are you doing? Well, I'm doing all right. I sometimes see on our end results that one of our heads is higher than the other one, and our our, uh, our uh, uh, we need a producer, man. But I guess we'll just have to soldier on and uh, and uh, get it as close as we can. It's all about the opinions, eh? Uh huh. That's right. But what we no one looks at us, hopefully. All right, uh, Bruce, we're going to talk about um, a few things today. We're going to talk about uh, the NHL season resuming, the latest word from Ryan Rashad, Brian Burke, and maybe some others on that, and just how freaking long it's taking for them to, to gear up. And I have a theory on this, which I'm going to expound upon, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the latest news on Yesapulya Yarvi. Mm-hmm. Dmitry Samarukov, Leon Dreisaitl, and is that it? Oh, and we're going to talk about our prospect series, which is actually related to the first point. We're going to be uh, at the Cult of Hockey in the next month. We're going to be um, doing our prospect series, which we usually reserve for uh, August, which we usually do in August, but we're going to start now. So, so Bruce, the reason we're starting the prospect series now is Although we have the playoffs against Chicago Blackhawks coming up, um, there's not really a lot to say about that series in the next. I mean, we've already analyzed to death. The, the, you know, we've gone through the Oilers um, players who may or may not be back with the team. Where we've looked at the power play, the, the penalty kill. We've looked at their lines. We've looked at the Chicago lines. There's not a whole lot more. We, we're going to be able to write about this series upcoming because there's not a whole lot to say. And the NHL, although Brian Burke says 100% they're going to go. He's gone from 0%. Mm-hmm. I don't know why he said 0% before. But anyway, he was at 0% for some reason. Now he's at 100%. Um, and, but first, they're not starting. They're not getting to training camp until July 10th, I believe. Right. And the games don't look like they're going to start in earnest till August 1st. And Honestly, it doesn't make any sense why it's taken so long to me, except for one thing. They want to delay this. They want to push it back as much as reasonable because they need this is this is the whole theory of they need next season to be business as usual so they can make some make NHL money. Right. Make the usual amount of money. Mm-hmm. The reason they're pushing it back so far because they doesn't make sense i don't think it makes sense otherwise to push it back so far not with the way america's opening up with many canadian jurisdictions opening up makes no sense except they want to sell tickets to live fans for next year's games and they they realize that is not very likely to happen in september or october or november so no sense wrapping up this season too soon might as well push everything back open up probably january 1st uh, 2021, and maybe much more likely chance at that point to have fans in the stands. So that's why I think we're seeing this. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but this I don't understand the huge gap. Otherwise, it's it's 50 days, Bruce, until we're going to see 
uh, an NHL game. Like, does it? I don't see it taking that long, honestly, for the players to and the teams to whip themselves into shape and to figure out all the the details. But maybe I'm missing something. What's your take? Well, they're taking their sweet time about announcing these hub cities, and yes. uh, wh- once they do announce it, there will be uh, there will be some preparation time needed in the hub cities, both uh, for their own facilities, but to accommodate the players and for the teams to make their you know their arrangements to get their players together in one place. Uh, at this point, we're still not sure if Canada is seriously in the running to be a hub city or not. If not then the Canadian teams probably won't even hold their training camps in Canada. They'll hold them in the United States and get their, you know, their, their overseas players to come back, join them in the U.S. for their training camp. And when you, when you think of those uh, considerations, I mean, July 10th is, what, four weeks off still? So that should be plenty of time to get that together. Uh, I'd like to think there'll be an announcement on the Hub Cities coming in the next, sometime next week. And there's... Um, uh, sort of mixed messages we're getting as to whether the uh, the federal government will allow the uh, uh, you know accommodate the uh, the process or, or not and uh, there's also mixed messages frankly whether how badly the league wants to play in Canada I mean the the exchange rate is favorable to do stuff here but I will not be shocked if it winds up the whole thing winds up stateside yeah. No, at this point, I mean, I, the federal government has had some amount of time at this point uh, to look into this, Bruce. And people say, well, they've got other more important things to do. Well, you know, fair enough. But they're capable of, they have a huge number of people who work for them, the federal government. They have a huge number of civil servants. And they're not, actually, they're not in charge of the, the, the health plans for these games to proceed. Right. They only have one aspect of this, which is the border issue. Um you know, it's the provincial governments in Alberta, Ontario, uh, BC, who would set the rules with the NHL about how the, how this would proceed. It's entirely all of those really fine details are done at a lower level. All the provincial government would have to essentially say is sign off on. Well, yeah, you're all coming in on a chartered airplane. Everyone's been tested on that airplane. Um, there doesn't seem to be any realistic health risk to Canadians of this happening. Um, they just have to go through that procedure and sign off on it. So it, I just, I don't know if they think optically there's something bad about, uh, you know, privileging NHL players to let them play games like this. Like if they see that as a, as an issue, I don't quite, honestly, I don't get it. That, you know, you'd think the, the, Toronto might be a hub city here. They might lose being a hub city because of this, mm-hmm. because of this foot dragging. I can't imagine that I, like, some people are going to be perfectly okay with that. There's lots of people who say we'll just cancel the season, and you know there's a certain percentage of hardcore hockey fans who feel that. But there's another percentage of there's got to be some you know in the Venn diagram of liberal voters and people who love hockey and want the hockey to proceed. There's got to be some intersection of that. Oh yeah. And I'm thinking it's not small. And I just wonder why they're not. There doesn't seem to be, if there was any realistic health problem, sure. But I don't get it. And I'm getting a little frustrated by it, but I'll just set that aside. Maybe again, maybe there's something I don't understand about this whole thing, and maybe there's good reasons. But the fact I think that the I think the NHL teams actually threatening to hold their training camps in the United States might be kind of the spur to get the federal government to get off its butt and, and make a decision here, uh, because that's kind of like what you got to go to the states to 
your training camp. You can't even have that in your own, your home city. So anyway, I so the for us, we're we're you know we're uh, hockey fanatics. We also run this call to hockey. This little this little website, a little bit of a business for us and for the Edmonton Journal. And we gotta we have to provide content, and we like writing orders. So we are going to do that, Bruce. So mm-hmm. what we've decided to do is we're going to usually we have our prospect series in August right. the deadest time but now yep. this is the deadest time pretty there's much. nothing there's not pretty much so there's not much to yeah. say we could write more we could write a player review which you've been heading down that path of every single player but we won't have the playoffs in terms of right. rating them which is actually the single most important thing in deciding the future of undecided contracts mm-hmm. for the Oilers it's hard to yeah. adjudicate whether they how much they should get whether they should get a new contract, what should happen until we have that piece of information. Yeah. With the prospects, we're missing though a, a key piece of information, which is their uh, the owner's draft. We usually we add in the latest, freshest players um, to the draft list, and we won't have that for this list. But what we'll do, um, what we've decided to do is, once there is a draft, we'll just re-tier the players to come up with kind of our final prospect list. But for now, this will we'll rate all the players, and we'll do our prospect rankings because we have a whole year of information to write about with each of these players well one thing we do know about the prospects is that none of them is going to be playing any more hockey between now and august or whenever we would be writing this series oh yeah Uh, with you know with with with, uh you know possible exception i guess of evan bouchard or tyler benson getting the game in the playoffs uh what we don't have that normally uh uh um affects the well certainly the top of our and the mid-range of our lists is a new draft as you point out and the other thing is we don't have the uh uh as yet the denouement that usually happens on june 30th when the oilers and other teams decide whether or not to renew or not renew expiring contracts so we have players like shane starrett uh cameron hebig uh logan day uh that were on our prospects last last year and by default they're still on the list even though by the time we get to August, we may find out those guys are no longer in the organization. So all we can do really, I think, is is um, judge each prospect on the development that he showed in uh, uh, in 2019-20, the season that was cut short everywhere, uh, and sort of update that information, uh, do a provisional ranking of the players who are on the list. And by the time we get to the end of the series, um, uh, or even after we finish writing uh, about those players, well, we, we will get to the NHL offseason, the draft, the salary, or the, the contract issues, and then we'll just have to sort of backfill the new draft picks uh, with a few posts about the new ba- uh, draft picks, and then just completely uh, do re-rankings at that time. But the stories will have been written because we, you know, we might as well write them now for all we're going to know in the, in the future. We already know what we're going to know. So either way, you know, if we do player reviews, we don't have playoffs. We do prospect uh, profiles, we don't have the draft, and we don't have the, the the contract situation. So there's, you know, there's, it's. I keep going back to this. It's like a, it's like a, uh, uh, it's like a game that got stopped in the middle of a period for a catastrophic event, and the Zamboni is out when it shouldn't be out there, and you're kind of waiting and wondering what's going to happen next. Well, that's where we are, and. That's how we're going to to compromise, and uh, at least you know the stories about the prospects 
will be valid, even as the rankings are, as I say, provisional. Yeah, and you know what? The, the rankings, uh, we write, we're going to be writing profiles of the top 20 players. Mm-hmm. I, I think there would realistically be, unless the Oilers trade for a bunch of picks, there's probably going to be, like the Oilers have a first pick this year, right? Yep. Uh, it's going to be in the 20th overall range, or maybe if they win the Cup, it'll be 30th overall, 31st overall. Oh. Yeah. So they'll, they'll have the 31st overall pick in the draft this year. And uh, they will also, they don't have a second the round. Pick. They don't have, <laughs> either, either the first pick or the 31st. We can both agree on that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they won't have a second pick unless they trade for one. They traded mm-hmm. that away in the Andreas Athanasiu trade. Mm-hmm. And they might not have a third pick, depending on how the NHL rules on the James Neil Milan Lucic situation. So there's probably only one ranking that would change, honestly. Um, unless there's some other movement. But the rankings aren't going to change a whole lot, actually, um, after the draft, because, again, there's not a lot of top picks there. Although the Oilers could trade for some top picks, that's entirely uh, possible, given how many veteran players they have and um, the value some of those players have in trade. All right, uh, let's talk, Bruce, about... um, Oh, I should ask add one final thing. On the federal government front, Ryan Rashog had did have kind of a hopeful tweet on Thursday, I believe, where he said that uh, it looks like something's been worked out with the federal government on this. There's been movement on this. So we'll see. Uh, hopefully that is the case. But you never know. Bruce, there was some news this week on two yeah. different players, Dmitry yeah. Samarukov and Yesapulia Yarvi. Mm-hmm. Let's start with Samarukov. Okay. You wrote a post on that. What happened? I did. Uh, yeah, from all reports out of, out of Russia with the uh, usual dodgy Russian interpretation. Uh, and uh, uh, But it sounds like uh, Dmitry Smorkov, who's a um, uh, going to be a second-year entry-level player next year, uh, is planning to play just the 2020-21 season in the KHL for CSKA Moscow, uh, former Red Army uh, Moscow, famous team. Uh, he's um, he signed for, for just, well, not even signed, but they kind of agreed, and I think he'll be loaned by the Oilers because uh, Holland was in on it. There were some good quotes that Mark Spector got from directly from Ken Holland, and it's not an ideal situation for the Oilers, but guess what? There is no ideal situation going forward. And for me, the the most important thing is what's ideal for this player. And if he's going to be playing in his own backyard and starting up playing hockey at the normal time in September and playing a normal season in a league that we're pretty sure is going to run next year, uh, whereas the AHL, honestly, David, I got questions as to what and how and in what form the AHL is even going to be uh, in this upcoming season. Uh, so if they found a place to put a prospect where he's more or less guaranteed to play, unless something savagely goes wrong with uh, COVID in Russia, uh, it's probably in his best interest, even as uh, a return to you know the wide ice and the different style of Europe is not ideal in the development curve. Well, we passed the point where there is an ideal. And I think that they've got a... Uh, uh, a reasonable compromise for for this player, and I mean, if you look at it from a player's point of view, imagine you're from Russia, 
and you've decided you're going to leave your family and come over to North America to pursue your hockey career. Now you're being told that, okay, next year, not only are you unlikely to make the NHL team again, but we're really not sure when the season's going to start. We're, you know, we're going to stash you down in California for a few months while things settle out. Like, it's not an enticing situation at all. So to me, this fact that the Oilers now potentially have three, three, count them, three defensemen, all learning, learning, uh, developing back in Europe, in ter- uh, Philip Broberg, Philip Berglund, both in the Swedish League, and now Dmitry Smorkov in the KHL. I mean, those are the two top leagues over there, uh, as good or better than the AHL. They'll be playing against men. Uh, I think from a Oilers' perspective, given that these are not guys that they would likely be calling up during the 2021 season, because they got depth of young guys ahead of them, it's not the worst thing at all that they just stash them in, in Europe and let them play and develop in, in very good leagues over there. Yeah, it speaks well of Samarukov, I think, that he's mm-hmm. he's charted this out and l- looking at things and is, and is, you know, picking Moscow over California um, <laughs> next fall. <laughs> you know, he, wow. he's, he's, um, he's putting hockey first here, and he had a, a decent... Um, opening season in the AHL, not unlike the seasons that Ethan Bear and Caleb Jones had in right. the first year in the AHL. And um, so he, um, you know, he's a really solid prospect. Yep. And he is a very, very uh, promising hockey player for the Edmonton Oilers. So this was, this is, I'm glad that he's going to play over there. And, uh, you know, the Swedish the Swedes and the Russians in terms of their mindset around COVID-19 seem to be more in the camp of let's just keep going business as usual. So I think that the, the, the likelihood uh, as opposed to California where they have, you know, they're very strict um, about this disease. And I'm not saying who's right or wrong. I'm just saying these are right. the different approaches of the two different places. So I think Samarukov has made the right choice. I mean, the yeah, you know, one of the rumors I heard, I can't remember where now is they might have like, tournament style games with the AHL teams in California where you practice all week. I mean, this is essentially what they had this past year. I mean, they, they were as a few road trips at the Bakersfield Cotters played, but they played the vast majority of their games within California against the same group of teams. And um, I could see the same thing happening. You know, the, the, I guess their economic considerations, do do, do NHL teams want to subsidize those leagues? They're going to have to Bruce. Um, if they want these players to develop, or I guess they could try to stash them all on European teams. Um, wow. I don't know. That that sounds like a major. The so guys with European roots, uh, it's a that's a relatively easy easy path. Uh, the guy, you know, you're going to send Cooper Marodi to Russia? I don't think so. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> going to be. Um, well, maybe maybe Austria or. Well, the Swiss league. Switzerland. Yeah. But yeah. you're right. Like I, I it's, it's. A, we'll see what happens. I, I don't know. We let's. We, we can't really say what's going to happen there. But um, I, I, I really. I'm glad this was. I think this was a positive move uh, on Samarukov. And you know what, Bruce? And this is this is the argument I'm going to make about Yesapuliarvi. And I know mm-hmm. that a lot of fans don't agree with this, but it was it was in, entirely positive for Yesapuliarvi to leave Edmonton last summer and mm-hmm. to go back to Finland. And it wasn't just positive 
for Yesapul Yarvi, I think in, in terms of getting healthy after some hips after hip surgery, major hip injuries that were holding him back. I think he had hip surgery, did he not? Yes, both hips. So after a, coming back from a major injury, coming back from a major kind of failure for all kinds of reasons with the Oilers organization, it was entirely positive for Yesapul Yarvi uh, to go play in Finland for a year. But I also think it was entirely positive, entirely positive, Bruce, for the Edmonton Oilers organization. Because for this reason, Pugliarvi needed to get his game together. I don't think, in his final year in the NHL, for whatever reason, he just didn't look like an NHL player at all. He was falling down all the time, maybe mm-hmm. related to his, his hips, uh, not, being, not being healthy, having an injury we didn't know about. That's often the reason players aren't playing very well. And he also just didn't look in sync with the team, ready to play the NHL game. He needed to go somewhere else to get his game together, to get his head together, to get his body together. If he had signed at Edmonton, Bruce, they were out of they were out of chips with the guy. They, if they sent him to the AHL, he yeah. was no longer on an ELC. He would have had to go on waivers. Another team would have scooped him up. But he wasn't ready to help the Oilers under Tippett and Holland, who needed to win right now. There was no wiggle room. That's why they brought in all these veteran players. Mm-hmm. The, the logical place for Pugliarvi in North America would have been the AHL, just like Kyler Yamamoto this year, but they couldn't send him there. So the best thing in the world, it was like a, a gift to the Oilers organization was him saying, hey, I'm going to go play in Finland. It's like, wow, like go. That's the, the, I, I wonder if, yeah. if part of Ken Hall, and he maybe never, never said that in public, like, yeah, do it. You go there, go, you know, go there we still have your rights. And at, so at the time, Ken Holland, a very, and we, we heard him say this at the time. He's been through this situation many, many times in the past. He, he mm-hmm. knows players have changes of heart. They can have a change of heart. He had been through that in Detroit. He said that at the time. He was looking forward to the, looking forward into the future and thinking, Pauli Arby might have a change of heart. And lo and behold, in the last couple of months, I guess he said it twice, according to, um, uh, Twitter writer Marie Lonborg, uh, who's play, paid close attention to this, he first said this about a, I guess about a month or so ago, and now he said it again to a Finnish uh, newspaper writer who I actually who, who's confirmed the quote to me. I got in touch with him on Twitter when he asked Pulleyarvi, "Would you ever go back to Edmonton?" Pulleyarvi waited for a moment and said, "Never said, ne- never say never." Right. So a, a big change in Pulleyarvi's position that he now sounds like he might be open to coming back to Edmonton. So I just see this. This whole thing was Pulley Harvey and his agent shaking the box, making things better for the for the player. They took a lot of criticism in Edmonton for doing it, but it's it's. I think it worked out for for Pulley Harvey and for the Edmonton Oilers. Yeah, this business of the waiver exemption was pretty big because they they were out of options, uh, having basically fumbled away all three years of his entry level contract with uh, with really mismanagement. Uh, you know, I think originally um, Chiarelli had, I mean, we've never heard this explicitly stated, but Occam's razor tells us the simplest solution is most likely the truth. And the simplest solution of why Yasipul Yarby stayed with the Edmonton Oilers for exactly 41 games in 2016-17 before being sent down to the minors was to vest the first year of his entry-level contract. And he wasn't ready. And he was uh, really not, you know, he spent a lot of time in the press box. In game 41, he played three minutes and 27 seconds, I remember. The next day, he was on a plane. 
not to return. And that season was wasted. If he'd spend his 18-year-old season in Finland, maybe all this other stuff wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have transpired. But all of the experts said, well, there's three guys and they're all NHL ready. And you got one of those three. Well, you've got a player that's going to help you right away. And, uh, and uh, uh, that was when the contract was signed. Apparently, that hype was fully believed. And for whatever reason, uh, he didn't fit in... Uh, right away and as an 18 year old I mean 18 year old players are in pretty deep in this league and you know even the very best of them and the next year they you know they did send him down at the first and they called him up and he and he got hot for a few weeks and started to look like this is all going to work out well the third season and this is a season where they lost him where um, they uh, started him in the NHL they sent him and Yamamoto out on the same day as I recall uh in early November of, uh, of 2018 uh, to Bakersfield. And it sounded like he was going to go down there for a few months, like period. Yeah. And then uh, a few things happened, including Ryan Strom, his mentor, getting traded. Then um, Todd McClellan getting fired. Then Ken Hitchcock saying, well, if this guy needs to be developed, I'm the guy to develop him. Let's get him back up here, and I'm going to give him my personal attention. It all sounded great with this Hall of Fame coach and everything. But... It was hard to tell what what he was getting out of. Plus, he had all those hip issues, and you know he was on a friggin' yo-yo, David. And it was uh, uh, was not fun to watch. And you could kind of see the confidence and the and the joie de vivre draining out of this player. And it just was, you know, this is kind of his stock and trade. So nice to see that coming back. In terms of every picture I've seen from Finland, the guy's got a big smile plastered on his face, just like it used to be. Uh, so that alone, just to sort of recharge the personal batteries, I think was a useful reason to go back to, to Finland. Uh, if he wants to come back, that's the key. Does he want to come back? And, and uh, will he accept coming back to Edmonton? Maybe they can make a deal saying, okay, yes, so you come back and play for us for one year. Uh, we'll give you a one-year contract. Uh, at the end of it, you'll have arbitration rights. But we'll also give you, you can ask for a trade at the end of this year. And if you say you still want to be traded, then we'll trade you. But you've got to establish yourself as having value in the NHL before anybody's going to want to trade for you. So the one thing that concerned me about Pulley ERB leaving was like, when we had Tippett and Holland come in, it was like a changing of the guard in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. I just wondered, like, why don't you want to come back if there's a changing? Yeah. And I wondered if there was something with his teammates as well. Yep. And this is something that we do not know. But um, wherever Pulia Yarby goes in the NHL, there's going to be—he's going to have to fit in on a team, and he's going to have to figure out that how to do that. And and maybe a year away will will help in that regard. I will say this, Bruce: something has dramatically changed on the Edmonton Oilers. Mm-hmm. When Pulia Yarby was last on the Oilers, Connor McDavid and Leon Drysaddle, I think, were dead set on playing together on the same right. line. Let's come out. That's been said, I think, if you listen to Oilers now. I think it's been said in so many words on Oilers now. These two guys wanted to play together. They weren't happy with other line mates often. They were, who knows, they might have, and I'm just guessing, they might have been kind of cranky when it didn't happen. That might have impacted Pugliar because often when you'd have, well, always when you'd have McDavid and Dreisaitl together, Pugliarvi wasn't their other line mate. That did, right. that was never the... So never. him trying to fit in there, like, okay, so McDavid gets Pugliarvi as line mate. That means Leon Dreisaitl isn't his line mate, something that both those players really wanted at that time. That's, that is gone now, I think. Everyone now, I, I think, 
is pretty much in McDavid at center, Drysaddle center, Camp, including those two players, including those two players. So that opens up things. McDavid now needs to find some wingers who work with them, and it's not going to be Leon Drysaddle. So I I just wonder if that's going to help a player like yeah. Jesse Puljujarvi. And I'm not calling him. Uh, Jim, my colleague Jim Matheson was saying like, stop this narrative that Puljujarvi is a top line or. or top six NHL winger. Really I actually know. don't hear that narrative, Bruce. What I hear is people hope, I hope that. I I, I would love to see him as a top, uh, you know, first or second line NHL winger. I think there's still a chance that that could happen. I would say it's about a 33% chance, a one in three chance that Pugliarvi is going to develop into that player. So I don't even think it's a coin flip. I think it's a little mm-hmm. bit less than that, probably. 17% less than that, to be exact. Um, but... Um, I do think he he has that chance with McDavid, and and if he doesn't make it, like he could be a heck of a third line winger too. Like he's, I think he's, I think he's a, a good NHL player in there somewhere. But um, we'll see if that happens at Edmonton. I hope it does. I still hope it does. Well, the thing about the uh, realignment of uh, McDavid and Drysaddle is when they were playing together, you you could play exactly one winger. With McDavid yeah. and Drysaddle, with them apart, there's room for four wingers. Yeah, like there's four times as much opportunity for a winger to play on a line with one of McDavid or Drysaddle as there was for a winger to play with both of them. And whereas you know the two together, a winger like Patrick Maroon or, or arguably Zach Cassian took advantage of that. You had other guys kind of, you know, in less good positions let's put it that way so the, the idea that they've been realigned uh, uh, vertically and as uh, Dave Tippett so uh, uh, cleverly said what Connor and Leon like is winning uh, <laughs> when he asked me if they, when they asked him if he, they liked playing separately he said no uncertain terms Connor and Leon like winning and who's gonna who's gonna argue with that uh, not Connor or Leon and it was working so I think they've come to come to grips with that idea that, um, <clears throat> you know, they can have fun winning. They're going to get their time together on the power play. They had lots of fun on the power play. You know, uh, you know they're going to get the big minutes and, the, and their chances, and they can each impact the game, you know, at separate times. Uh, between them, they, they have a bigger impact over a much larger uh, percentage of a game when they're separated than when they're together. You know, when they're together, 20 minutes, 22 minutes, whatever, all the rest of the time they're on the bench. Whereas in the current arrangement, they're on the ice together for, you know, three, four minutes together, power play, maybe a couple shifts after penalty kill. And otherwise each has 15 minutes away from the other. And so between them, they're out the ice, on the ice well over half the time, one of them. And that's a way, way better arrangement for them and also for the potential wingers that they might play with. It's interesting, you know, it's not, it, it doesn't seem in a, seem necessarily to be an easy thing to find the right wingers to play with McDavid. And he, mm-hmm. and there's a couple of reasons for that. He moves up the ice faster than any other hockey player in the NHL. Ever. So just keeping up with them is like, you can't, I, I've seen this with Lucic, Chase on James Meal. Um, they just have a hard time. Now, Patrick Maroon found a way, but they, this, a lot mm-hmm. of these bigger guys have a hard time keeping up. And the other thing is he he really does need the puck. And you want the puck on Connor McDavid's stick. So if you're a player who also likes the puck, like Ryan Nugent Hopkins, 
And you also have a bit of a deferential streak, which I see in Nugent Hopkins games. You, I think they, a, a lot of players start to subvert their games to McDavid when they're out there, then they don't make plays like they can. So he, that doesn't happen when RNH with, is with Dreisaitl for whatever reason. But it does happen. I, I, I think I've seen this with my own eyes, that it, that it does happen with McDavid. And the only guy that that didn't happen with is Dreisaitl, because Dreisaitl, is, you know, he's got the stature in his own mind to be that dominant hockey player. Um, but I think, he, here's my theory, Bruce. I, I'm not sure that Pugliarvi is actually the right fit with McDavid for the same reason, that he might subvert his game too much to play with McDavid. But Connor Yamamoto might be the right fit. Because Connor Yamamoto, I see him as someone who's who's got a, a healthy sense of himself. Let's put it that way. And um, like, there's that story from the from when he was drafted, right? When he went into the Oilers draft room and talked to these, you know, ten or ten Oilers hockey men and said, "If you don't draft me, you'll, re- you'll regret it, right? You'll live to regret it." I think that's the story. So I think Connor Yamamoto might have the speed and the attitude actually to succeed with McDavid. And I could see that in the future. And we might have a we might have a second line with Puglia Yarvi, Drysaitel, and Nugent Hopkins, for instance. And I do recall in his rookie year, the one time that I saw Jesse Puglia Yarvi really, really good, he was on a line at the start of his rookie season with Drysaitel and Patrick Maroon for about ten games, and that line was good. Puglia Yarvi looked fine as a rookie in those ten games. He it was a big, heavy forechecking line, and he and he did his bit. So um, there might be some reshuffling. Uh, recalibrating of the top lines but I do uh, and again so I can see why Maddie's saying like I'm maybe uh, some people are spreading the narrative Pugliarvi's a top six winger like I do think he he needs that chance wherever he goes again and some people say well he's got to earn that chance yeah sure he's got to earn that chance but he he was a point of game player in the Finnish league he did go to the Finnish league to improve his game so he could come back and challenge and um, you know He's been a, nearly a point-a-game player every time he's been sent to the AHL, like a, maybe .08 might average out. So uh, I'm good with that. I'm good with Pugliarvi getting that chance when he comes to Edmonton again. And uh, if he comes here, and I hope it works out. Looking up some stats. Yeah. Yeah. Just anticipating a future subject we're working on here, but you're, you're nothing I disagree with that you said in there. Uh, whether, you know, I mean, we have in some ways we have a similar questions about Andreas Athanasiu. Yes. Right. Is he going to be a guy who can play with McDavid or is he, uh, you know, a guy that uh, uh, prefers to have the puck on his own stick stick as he's speedily leading the rush up the ice? Is he better suited to playing on a first line or, or being a, you know, a, a full out attacker on, a, on another line? Uh, we don't know yet. Um, and maybe we'll see like a third attacking line, like mm-hmm. with that. Let's say it's Athanasiu, Pugliarvi, and and a, you know, some center that we don't know about yet. You know, I was interested to hear Cooper Marodi, um, who's written this song in in honor of his teammate Colby Cabe, and good work uh, by yeah, Marodi okay. on that. That's a brilliant tribute. He was on orders now talking about his own health. How he, you know, after that freaking idiot Kale Kessie rammed him into the boards. The coach for listen, I'm not going to blame Kale Kessie. Kale Kessie was given a job and he did it. It was his coach who's a jackass who should be suspended. Like I just that that just drives me crazy. That kind of coaching, get out there and injure someone. What kind of a jerk does that? Anyway, I got blamed for both the coach and the player. Yeah. Um, Cooper Marodi 
spent all last year recovering from those injuries and was a shadow of the player that he had been the previous year. Now, hockey's a tough game. Hockey is a tough game. Players are going to get hurt. But he, he, Cooper Marody might be in the running uh, again because he's talking about how he's seen the best specialist. I think it was concussions and um, might be ready to to come back and shine. I mean, Cooper Marody was, he was a fantastic AHL hockey player uh, before he got hurt. He was the, the, you know, the Patrick Kane of the AHL. That's how he looked on the ice. That's statistically how he performed there. And you can say, well, those doesn't always translate to the NHL, that kind of scoring. But he was still a fairly young guy. I think he was 22 when he had all those points, 21 or 22. And in his rookie season in the AHL, that was all very promising until he got hurt. So maybe it'll be Marodi, Afanasiu, and Pugliarvi, like the unlikely third line of the Edmonton Oilers that, that uh, with some really uh, talented hockey players. I don't know if that's in Tippett's uh, wheelhouse, Bruce, though, to have that kind of third line or not. But uh, that's a possibility. Well, it would be nice to, uh, if uh, Pugliarvi came back and gave it another shot and we see what we, what he had. And like I say, I think the team would be um, justified and the player would be justified to say, let's give it one year and let's re- reevaluate after that one year and uh, let you yeah. reestablish your value as a NHL uh, commodity going forward. And if uh, you, at the end of the year you still um, decide you want to go elsewhere, then we'll accommodate you, but at least then we're trading an NHL player and not some guy from the Finnish league. More solid competition for an NHL job in Edmonton. Like, it just push every push, push Athanasio, push Tyler Banson, push everybody to be that much better because if he's coming back, and which is still, who knows, maybe he will, maybe he won't. I don't know if he could sign and like in Carpat again for half the year with an out, an NHL out, if the NHL season resumes. Um, I wonder if that's going to be possible for some players to to get that kind of deal, and what if they would be allowed then into the NHL? I think if, as long as the season hadn't started, they probably would be. Bruce Dreisaitl, you um, there's going to be NHL voting. Is that is that right for the MVP yeah, coming up? I've heard some. I heard uh, Burke saying Dreisaitl's his pick. Brian Burke said that. Mm-hmm. Elliot Friedman said he's um, in the top four. He's getting, Friedman's going to be sorting out this weekend who he's going to vote for. I would hope he's in the top four. Holy moly! Well, McKinnon, he he mentioned McKinnon, Panarin, mm-hmm. uh, who's kind of this the you know the stats guys pick. I I would never pick a winger over a, a strong two way center, honestly, unless he'd have to have just a, a, a dominant dominant scoring stats. And I don't care what this you know what whatever numbers you're using, like he's got to really really outscore that center, which Panarin did not do in terms of dry subtle. because a winger's value to a team is just that much less than a center's and it's I think it's significant honestly um so Bruce what's your argument for Dreisaitl because you wrote a post on this I did and my post is that what he what he I guess the big objection to him is that his defensive record wasn't strong and for sure he had a stretch in the in the uh late part of November and basically all of December where things went sideways not just for well not sideways they went straight downhill for not just Leon, but for the team as a whole. Uh, I previously documented that uh, um, in writing an article about Mike Smith and how his December went into the toilet, how he wasn't the only oiler to be tanking at that time. Uh, Oscar Clefbaum had a brutal time of it. Leon Dreisaitl had a brutal time of it. His line mates, McDavid and Cassian, had a brutal time of it. It was 
team was in the tank. They won four games out of 15, and the only reason they won those four games was because the power play and the penalty kills saved them. At even strength, they were getting caved. And if you were to look at those weeks in isolation, then and, and no way is Dreisaitl within 100 miles of being an MVP candidate. What you have to look at is the context of the, the, the caliber of his play, both before and after that. Uh, in October, Leon became the first NHL player this century to score 25 points in October. Uh, he, he, and the Oilers got off to a strong start right away. Uh, through the first quarter of the season, he was leading the league and, and averaging well north of, uh, I think, 1.6 points per game at that point. Uh, then came the... the it's a dip, if you want to call it that. It's like it had the profile of a bungee jump. He just like he went off a cliff and then he sprang right back. And then in January, from the beginning of January, when they put him back at center and put him on his own line, uh, from there to the end, they were just they were just running wild. I mean, you want to talk about Leon' uh, defensive record? Uh, I, I, that's what I was just looking up from January first to the end of the season. Uh, he, he was on the ice for uh, over eight hours at even strength and per hour, 4.06 goals for 1.97 goals against. Like that line was excelling offensively and defensively. They were outscoring the other teams like crazy. And that line was what propelled the Oilers to a 17-8-5 record in their final 30 games. And... As good as his wingers were, which were very, very good, Leon was the straw that what that stirred the drink, as Reggie Jackson once said. And uh, uh, you know, the puck went through his stick more than anybody else. He was the guy with the most sort of two-way responsibility as the center on the line, and he got the job done at both ends. Once I sorted out what position he was playing, I mean, some of those defensive woes, and you and I have talked about this often, was the business of having two offensive centers on the same line. And and some of the defensive assignments going uh, going a little bit sideways, and depending on how you view the play, you know who was the who was F one, who was supposed to do this, who was supposed to do that. And I think you know Leon and Connor together for all their offensive strengths behind their own blue line, they're not a wonderful combination together. And and getting that sorted out was a big part of uh, uh, of Tippett's success in turning his team around. They really aren't, Big David. And I remember because after they broke them up, they were out on the same shift a few times. And I just was on pins and needles waiting for the mistake to happen between the mm -hmm. two of them. Even after they were broken up, you know, and had time apart, they just don't seem to be able to play together very well in the defensive zone. They're just out of sync. No, you know, no one's covering the defensive slot well enough. And you put McDavid on his own out there, he gets it done okay in the defensive mm -hmm. zone as a center. Put drive settle out there on his own. He he gets it done better than okay. Like I, I think when it is his primary job, he, he tends to take it very seriously and he does a great job or a good job. But together, oh, it's just I don't like seeing it. I get I get nervous now. Maybe it's because of what happened. It's obviously because it's what how it fell apart so badly in December. But um, they're just yeah. it's not working. The other aspect, of course, that a lot of the statistical analysis has always been focused on five on five play. Yes. And people will say, yeah, that's, you know, the majority of the game is played five on five. Uh, but, and 
that's where I guess the majority of games are won and lost, but certainly not all games. There was more than a few games this year where the Oilers were lost the game five on five and won it because they scored two power play goals and the other team didn't score any. And chances were very, very high that um, uh, Leon and Connor or both would be in on those power play goals. Uh, Leon wound up leading the league in power play points. He had 44 power play points. And if the season hadn't been stopped when it did, he was on track to be the first player uh, to get 50 power play points in the season since 2006-07 when the Shanahan Summit was uh, still kind of in effect and teams were getting five and six power play chances a game, not the three they're getting now. Like literally in 06-07, there was 163% the number of power play opportunities that there, there was in 2019-20. So I guess people are more inclined to score 50 points when you, you, know, when you had that many power plays. So Edmonton's power play was devastating in its efficiency. The 29.5% conversion rate, goals for rate, was the highest by any NHL team since Edmonton entered the league in 1979. The only teams that had a higher power play conversion rate since they kept power play stats in 77 were the New York Islanders of the like 78-79 era before the merger. They had a year over 30%, but uh, the Oilers literally in the last 40 seasons, this was the best conversion rate of any power play. Really? And yet, yeah. And yet, if you look at it, you know, from the defensive standpoint, Leon was on the ice for 56 goals for 10 against. The, so he, he was plus 46 on the power play, the best in the entire league. But for plus minus, he was minus 10 because they don't rate power play goals for they do rate shorthanded goals against it's a big major flaw in the plus minus system but you get people looking at well he was a minus player how you know and he was minus 10 on power plays despite all those goals and he was minus four on empty net situations and even strength he was an outscorer and very much an outscorer in the second half of the season and and then top of that he was also good on the penalty kill the other teams when leon was on the ice four on five scored two goals per 60, and when the Oilers were on the ice on the power play, 12 goals per 60. Like, just a huge, huge difference that doesn't show up anywhere in the five-on-five stats. And all due respect to Panarin, I mean, he is an offensive specialist. Wingers are offensive specialists. 80% of their job is the attack and 20% is defense. Mm-hmm. And do you, does anyone really think that Artemi Panarin is anywhere close to Leon Dreisettle as a defensive hockey player? If you put Artemi oh, yeah, Panarin at center, if you put him at center... How do you think he'd do in those battles down low and covering in front of that? No, maybe he'd be good. Maybe he's such a good player, but he's he's not asked to do that, and it's probably for a reason. And uh, Drysdale is asked to do that. Now he is for yeah. a reason. Yeah, as a center, and he was in, with McDavid. It was always like they they took turns being the center. Like they was like some people said Drysdale's the winger. Not really. Like they were both playing. This, this was the problem. They were confused about their roles because they were switching off and on. So. Like I, I, Artemi Panarin is a fantastic attacking hockey player. He is a brilliant attacker. There is no doubt about it. But he is not Leon Draisaitl. He is not the the two way player that Leon Draisaitl is. And I and I and yeah, Draisaitl had a defensive slump this year for a specific sure reason. But he absolutely kicked butt as a two way player uh, when he was the center of his own line, and he led the Oilers into the playoffs. He did it with McDavid out. I think he's, I think he's going to, I think he's going to win Bruce. I think the arguments this year are finally going to fall in the favor of an Edmonton Oilers hockey player. He's not going to get Paul Coffey out of this trophy. 
the vote's going to be closer than than you would expect. I mean, the last uh, in the last uh, since since the um, salary cap era. So I went back 2005, and yeah. there's been five previous guys who uh, won the scoring title by more than 10 points, and they all cleaned up on the Hart Trophy. They won by 30 to 60 percent in the vote uh, yeah. of for the uh, Hart Trophy. Uh, Leon will probably win by less than that because there's enough of this objections out there. And he's so lowly thought of, you know, David, last year, I look, in looking at the votes, I realized last year that Leon did not get a single vote for a Hart Trophy, not even the fifth place vote for Hart Trophy. He was the first player since Jenny Malkin in 2011-12 to score 50 goals and 50 assists in the same season. That is no mean feat. First guy in seven years to do it. When Malkin did it, he was the MVP with 99% of the vote. When Leon did it, zero votes. Like, it's incredible. It's like these people <laughs> never watch Edmonton play. They watch highlights and they say, well, that McDavid's pretty good. The rest of the team must suck if they're not in first place. And it drives me nuts. Like, hello? Like, this guy's been killing it for a while, you know? Anyway, we'll see if it uh, if it straightens out. But, uh, uh I think if nothing else was proven this year, it's that the Oilers are not just a one-man team. And McDavid was was out, uh, uh, and Leon had to, you know, carry the the first line load against top uh, opposing checkers and so on for a stretch. He killed it; his line killed it. The Oilers uh, managed to hold their own during that stretch of games, and he's, um, you know, there, there's. There's so many games in the season. I mean, this is the other thing. Numbers are numbers. It's not all about numbers. I mean, writers are doing the voting. The writers are about narrative. And the narrative is, geez, Oilers came back to win. Leon scored two in the third period, and they won three to two. He's the first star of the game. Well, the MVP is kind of like picking the first star of the whole season. And it's uh, it's a... uh, uh, I think he's made a very strong case for himself. And there are some strong... strong, uh, 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 competitors, Nathan McKinnon for sure, Jamie uh, Prenarin sure. for sure. You could you could make a case for David Pasternak. Uh, some people like Connor Hellebuck as a MVP candidate. I see him as a Vesna candidate, but uh, uh, you know there there's there's alternatives out there. But uh, uh, I think the the you know winning the scoring title by 13 points. Uh, which is basically the I think the second biggest margin since the lockout. I think that he he'll get sort of rank and file votes based on that and probably will cop the award. All righty. Well, Bruce, let's leave it there for today. Thanks for talking. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.